How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. My name is Maggie Thompson. I'm with Generation Progress. We've got a millennial takeover this hour. Um, I'm here with two fantastic guests. Um, We're going to be talking about the youth movement. Uh, Young people have been leading social movements and change across this country for decades, and we really wanted to dig into what that takes and what that means in this new era. So I've got a couple fantastic guests here with us today. But we really wanted this to be a conversation. So if you have questions uh, throughout the program, please feel free to give us a call. Um, buzz right in and by calling 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. All right, let's dig in. So our first guest is um, on my own team, our own Hannah Finney from Generation Progress. Um, we also have Andrea Sosa from Young People 4, um, both here in the studio with us today. Uh, well, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Also, so I think also on the phone we have Cece Battle, who's the head of YP4. Cece, are you there? Yes, I am. Fantastic. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. So just yesterday, the four of us uh, launched a report that we're very excited about. And I'll give you the the long story short here. But basically, uh, when you look at progressive infrastructure and how uh, progressives are spending their money in the nonprofit side, Conservatives are outspending us by a rate of three to one to talk to our generation, to young people. So when it comes to programs that engage youth, train them, get them, you know, to be part of the political and civic process, we're really getting outgunned by uh, the right. So this is obviously something that in this moment in history is a huge issue because we really have a lot of energy, especially energy from young people we have to capture after the election. So I really, you know, I just wanted to start off because these numbers, even for people that work in the progressive movement, were just so striking. Um, so Hannah, you know, you you really built a, a whole data set to help us figure out uh, the disparities here. So could you just walk us through sort of where are we falling behind and what are the top lines here? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like we all work in the progressive space, but we were all very surprised by the sheer scope of these numbers and, and really how big that disadvantage is. Um, so what we did was we took a look at four different um, issue areas, contributions, revenue, spending, property value, and really across the board, we found that progressive youth organizations face a severe disadvantage compared to their conservative friends. Um, so we found, for instance, that between 2008 and 2014, um, conservative youth organizations received half a billion 
billion dollars more in contributions than progressive youth organizations, which is pretty astounding. Um, and then we also found, like you said, there's kind of a three to one ratio that we're facing right now in terms of um, total revenue on the right and left for youth organizations. But I think it's also pretty important to contextualize that. Um, so progressives also have a much larger natural base within the millennial generation because we are the most progressive generation in history. So we have a third the spending, but twice as many people to spend it on. Those numbers just don't really add up in terms of long-term wins. Absolutely. And we don't want people to take our generation for, for granted just because we are progressive. We need to be engaged. And Andrea, one of the other pieces of this paper that you were working on was this wasn't just sort of about the numbers. It was also talking to youth organizations, young organizers, and asking them about sort of what the issues that they were facing as they're trying to organize their communities are. And could you just like talk us through sort of what were you hearing from people that are out there trying to organize our generation? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things that these numbers say is that progressives aren't really investing in a long-term strategy. So investing in a long-term strategy means investing in young people and figuring out ways that we can build an inclusive and progressive pipeline and diversify our movement at the same time. So the lack of this financial support has kept uh, progressive youth organizations from engaging in long-term leadership development in the form of training, networking, job placement, paid internships. And that has not only done a disservice to young people, but it's also done a disservice to youth serving organizations themselves totally. uh, and prevented things like long-term capacity building. So what this says is that we need to start thinking long-term and stop and move away from short-term initiatives like canvassing for particular legislation and get out the vote uh, initiatives. While they are important, I think they neglect, and what we found is that they neglect this long-term vision of how can how can we build our leaders to run for office and create their own legislation and learn how to write policy and implement their own policy. That's right. So this is, this you know, this is a depressing report. I mean, we're falling behind here, but just to zoom out a little bit. So I think that, you know, this report had some findings that I think are really important. But Cece, can you help us just put this in context, sort of, you know, why is it, especially now in this politically charged moment that we have in this country, in this moment of resistance, you know, sort of what are we missing out on by falling behind when it comes to invest, investing into um, engagement with young people? Yes, absolutely. I think the bottom line is that folks need to realize is we can't win without young people. And whether that win the policy initiatives, whether that win the progressive values institutionalized in, you know, different industries, we can't do that without young people. And if we aren't thinking strategically long term about, you know, how can we support these folks? How can we create pipelines to leadership and to success for these folks? then we won't win. And I think this political climate has showed us that. One of the things that it pains me to say that, you know, conservatives have done right is think about the long-term strategy. So if you think about what the conservative landscape looks like, you have folks that are CEOs of companies, you have folks that are leading nonprofits, you have, as the report showed, massive money going into nonprofits, you have folks running the hill. And if you look on the progressive side, as Hannah mentioned, and as the report shows, we have a lot more progressives, but why aren't we places of power, right? So what that shows is the lack of a trajectory up support for us to get there. And I think thinking about the big picture is we can like all of this data and know. But in terms of the practical, the practical thing is that we need young people. And if we need them, we have to show them that they're valuable, which means that we have to invest in them outside of short-term sex 
Galaxy projects that, you know, we as progressives like. Um, like Andrea said, you know, GOTV work, it's great and it's necessary. But what about those hardcore skills about, like, how do you find your first job? What about paid internships? What about sustainable wages once you get into these positions? How about, you know, advanced training once you're in these um, jobs and nonprofits? So I think that's the, that's the larger view of why this is really important. And if we don't capitalize on this now, when we have not only the base, but we have people that are interested in the work, we're going to lose. Totally. And I, I want to go back to something that you said, Cece, just to not, well, to put a fine point on it, that we can't win without young people. I think that, you know, without this investment in our generation, I think that we're losing so much opportunity. And I think that it is so short-sighted of progressives because I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again, but if we look at the election results in this past um, election cycle, there was only one generation that voted for Hillary Clinton and it was ours. Uh, every other generation went by double digits for Donald Trump. And this doesn't have to be just about politics and the political climate. But I think, you know, we are the largest generation in American history. We're the most diverse um, demographics work. So we're coming. So we should start talking to young people now and making them civic leaders now. And I think, you know, just to, you know, really dig in on sort of what young people can do about this, sort of how... Um, young people can further build power where they are. You know, I'm thinking like Hannah and Andrea, are there ways that young people who want to become leaders in their community, whether it's in a political way or otherwise to push back against this, um, what are some things that they can do? That's a good question. I think that one of the things we're seeing now, especially uh, in this political climate, is that there's a need for young people to organize in their communities where they are. Because, you know, we know that local government is more accessible and people can see tangible wins at that level. And right now the federal government is, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know. I don't have to tell you. Um, so I think that's where a lot of young people are focusing on and they have been for decades. And we just need to recognize that and support them where they are. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more. I think another interesting moment that's come out of a, a particularly tough time is seeing the unity that's emerged on the left, right? And I, I think that also applies to the young progressive movement, which is that we are, in fact, uh, the progressive side's biggest base. And so when we come together right. and say, like, no, paid internships are not an if, they're a definitely, like, we can't be stopped. And so I think a lot of it is all of us coming together and saying, these are things we need to fight for. These are things we must have. Absolutely. No, so folks were coming our generation here we go so that is um all the time we have um we're going to take a quick break right now but please um call in with any questions for our guests again this is the leslie marshall show millennial takeover give us a call at 888-653-7543 and we'll be right back Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Leslie 
commercial show, Millennial Takeover. My name is Maggie Thompson with Generation Progress. I'm here with Hannah Finney from our team at Generation Progress and two lovely ladies from YP4, Miss Andrea Sosa. And we've got Cece Battle, who heads up YP4 on the phone. Um, so we were just talking uh, before the break about a new report that our two organizations put out. And long story short, we are getting massively outspent on the left by conservatives when it comes to engaging with young people. We're talking about a gap of millions of dollars that they are spending to talk to, engage, and train young people um, versus what the progressive left is spending. And we were just digging in a little bit on some of the numbers, but we wanted to also walk through sort of what does that mean? You know, what does it mean that conservative organizations are spending three times more than left-leaning organizations on young people? Um, So, you know, Hannah, we, we were talking on the break and we were, we're thinking, so imagine Hannah is a young conservative. This, this is hard for all of us, but sort of, can you walk us through sort of, you know, just in, in, a, in a hypothetical, what is what is the sort of path to a career in politics or advocacy for a young conservative? And what does this funding make that look like? Yeah, um, I can actually speak to this pretty well, not as a young conservative. I was, but like, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Trick. Um, but I, I have had plenty of liberal friends who actually went on to intern at conservative organizations because that's how they could pay the bills. Um, and in fact, it makes sense if you're young and if you happen to lean conservative, you have a great pathway into that kind of a career. Um, internships are generally paid and not just minimum wage, they're paid well. Um, if you intern at a conservative think tank in DC, you'll often get housing covered for you in addition to a stipend, in addition to food. Um, you don't really see that on the other side. And then once you've gotten that internship, you're pretty much set. Um, there are networking opportunities always thrown for you all across um, the city and the country. Um, you meet all of the people that set you up. And and then you're kind of not guaranteed, but you have a really good shot at one of those crucial staff assistant entry level jobs. And conservative organizations tend to do a much better job of hiring young people year round and also based off of graduation rates so that they kind of get you and make it easy for you to work there. And I just haven't seen that same situation on the left. Totally. And Andrea, you talked to so many youth organizations and all of us here came up out of the youth movement. Can you talk through a little bit more what you know, if you're a progressive young person and you want to work in social justice or you want to work in politics, sort of what is what does your path look like? Right. Thank you. And I can definitely speak to this on a personal level as well. As a young progressive, we don't necessarily always have those same opportunities uh, or the financial means to sustain ourselves without having financial outside financial support. So what this looks like for a young progressive is, you know, you have an unpaid internship or you're couch surfing. I mean, this was me over the summer. You're couch surfing on your friends' couches um, and you don't have the support, especially if you come from a low income household. If your parents can't pay for you to take the metro every day to your mm-hmm. internship um so we're sticking DC to this path. Cheap. <laughs> exactly and it's rising so we're sticking to this path of excluding traditionally marginalized communities from our overall movement and progressive youth organizations can't stick to their values of things like equal pay uh because we just don't have the the financial means to do that totally and can we just step back because I'm, I'm wondering if there are some folks listening who when we say the progressive movement or youth infrastructure sort of maybe folks aren't necessarily understanding exactly what we mean like what kind of jobs are we talking about or internships or organizations yeah i think this is like the full gamut of the progressive movement whether it's internships on the hill or internships at a think tank or 
you know, internships at our own nonprofits, like Young People Foreign Generation Progress, a lot of these uh, internships and opportunities and fellowships give you the skills that you need to, you know, learn how to write policy and, you know, learn how to uh, have, you know, these like very particular skills that you wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. And if you don't have the financial means to support yourself in these opportunities, then you won't get them. Totally. I'd also say that I, and one thing that we talked about in the report even is just the right tends to do a much better job of recognizing the value of young people with conservative values across all sectors, right? Um, and that means not just investing in people who happen to want a career directly in public service or in public policy at Generation Progress or YP4. It means wanting to get folks uh, leading boardrooms and leading classrooms and making change in their communities that way. And that's something that the left has not done as great a job of, of spreading their investment in. Yeah, and I think that this is something, those those connections that you make in your first internship or, you know, I remember I, I had an internship in college at a great organization called Wellstone Action, training young people to be active in their communities. And 10 years later, literally a decade later, my boss at that internship hired me um, for a different job as I had gone on in my career. So I think it's hard to overstate how important it is that we're digging deep and investing people on the in young people on the front end um, because those connections just last forever and that's sort of the the formative nature of youth organizing and you know Cece I think that you know you and I have talked a lot about this how uh, given sort of this resistance movement and what's going on that really the time is now to be investing in young people and could you talk just a little bit more how does this how does this fit in sort of this broader resistance movement and new interest in activism that we're seeing yeah, definitely. So uh, for us, when we think about the time is now, it's this. Like, we are, you know, in a fight of values. And either we're going to support people and um, lift up people that share our values, or we're less vulnerable to folks who obviously do not. And when we think about, you know, the political climate, especially if we don't have folks in place to lead this fight of, you know, this is what we stand for, we're not only doing ourselves a disservice right now, but we're going to pay for this 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 years from now. So when I talk to people about this report and folks are like, yeah, you know, the gap has already been there, you know, it's, it's kind of something that we expect. And it's like, but what is the America that you want? What is your dream? Like, what are we fighting for? What is our North Star? And if that is, equality and equity and all of these lovely things that, you know, values that we as progressives say that we hold, what are we doing about that? And a big piece of that is really thinking about strategically investing in people. And I'm going to go through this question, talking about the pipeline and how that happens. What we have to understand is when there's any barrier that these the space that inhibits a large group of people from entering this fight, work means pushing you know the policies and uh, initiatives that we see and cc i'm sorry i'm so sorry we're 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 losing the the signal a little bit so i'm just gonna have to cut you off there but we're getting close to the end of the segment here but thank you so much everyone um i think that the point is young people are coming you gotta invest in us if we want our progressive movement to succeed um we'll be right back after the break talking about the supreme court this is the leslie marshall show
Welcome back, everyone. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, Millennial Takeover. My name is Maggie Thompson, hosting for Generation Progress. Um, we're here in studio today, and we are talking about the Supreme Court nominee of Donald Trump, Neil Gorsuch. Um, I've got some great guests in studio here today, but if you have any questions throughout uh, the segment, please feel free to give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. So we got a lot to talk about today, so I wanted to introduce my uh, for my first two guests. So first up in studio, we have Sharita Gruberg. She's the Associate, Associate Director of LGBT Research and Communications here at the Center for American Progress. Welcome, Sharita. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And then um, running around, possibly on the hill, um, fighting the good fight. I think he, he should be on the phone now. We have... Billy Corair, um, who is the Dep- Deputy Director of Legal Progress here at CAP. Billy, hey, uh, if we... I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Billy. Um, awesome. Well, so it's been a rough day for those of us that have been pushing back and fighting against Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. So I think let's just start at the beginning. Billy, if I could just ask you to update us on sort of what's happening you know, Donald Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch for the empty seat on the Supreme Court. This is the seat that was vacant for over 200 days during the Obama administration. Uh, you know, there has been a huge fight over Judge Gorsuch. But could you walk us through sort of what the Senate did today and what that means for his nomination? Uh, well, sure. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, in the in the days after Judge Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, um, it became clear that a lot of senators uh, were not going to support uh, his nomination, um, and and some Democrats announced that they were going to filibuster the nomination, which means that um, Judge Gorsuch would have to get 60 votes in the Senate to get confirmed. Um, and they did that, and the Republican leadership um, unfortunately responded by getting rid of that 60-vote threshold, uh, sometimes known as the filibuster. Um, which is a real drastic change to how the Senate has operated, um, you know, since they began holding confirmation hearings uh, for the Supreme Court. Um, so it's a, it's a really drastic uh, change to how the Senate is going to function, and it means that um, Donald Trump's nominee can now go forward for a vote tomorrow, um, and he can get confirmed with just a bare majority of senators, um, even like a party-line vote. They don't need any bipartisan support, which um, Supreme Court nominees have always needed in the past. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that a lot of the chatter today online and on the Hill has been, you know, about how this is really an unprecedented move. They had to, to change the rules to get this guy through. And you heard some chatter from Republicans saying, well, Democrats did it first and it's their fault. And, you know, that's just really not at all what happened um, and how we got to this point. Could you walk folks through sort of, you know, how did this obstruction start that got us to this place here today where literally Republicans are changing the rule of the Senate to get this guy through? Well, I mean, I think what those Republican senators are referring to is the um, is the move in 2013 when the Democrats were in charge of the Senate to get rid of the 60 vote threshold for lower court nominees. Um but they kept it in place for Supreme Court nominees. Um, and the leadership at the time only did that after there was a record number of filibusters for the lower court nominees. There were years of negotiations back and forth to try to get some movement um, on some of those nominees. Um, you know, the, the leader at the time, Senator Harry Reid, 
uh, really tried to work it out for a long time before they decided to, uh, quote, go nuclear, deploy the nuclear option uh, for the lower court nominees. But even when they did that, when they were forced uh, to do that by all the obstruction, um, they kept it in place for the Supreme Court, um, recognizing that the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. These are lifetime appointments to that court. Um, and these are just really important decisions that the Senate um, has always um, required some bipartisanship to make. Yeah, it's just it's just unbelievable. And there's only nine of them. So everyone really counts in terms right. of the justices. Well, you know, before we go to Shrita, because, you know, I think that now this this, um, you know, it looks like we're going to have just Judge Gorsuch on the court. We've got Sharita here who can talk about all, all of the ways that's problematic. But we've got a caller on the line um, uh, who wanted to talk about what's happening in the Senate. We've got Reggie um, from Decatur, Georgia. Reggie, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi, welcome to the show. How you doing, Maggie? Uh, we're we're doing as well as can be here in D.C. Um, so, what what you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that why can't we just why can't we just filibuster this guy trying to get into the onto the Supreme Court? I mean, after all, didn't isn't that the exact same thing that Republicans did to Merrick Garland when Obama was president? If That's... we can stop him from getting into the onto the Supreme Court. Why can't we stop this guy from getting on the Supreme Court, too, as well? That's a great question. And for folks that aren't familiar, uh, Merrick Garland was President Obama's nominee for the, the vacant court seat. Billy, do you, do you want to just talk through a little bit sure. sort of how, how this is uh, different in the, in the numbers game that's letting them get this through? Well, sure. I mean, the, um, the big difference is that the Republicans, when they blocked uh, Merrick Garland, were in the majority. Um, so they decided who gets brought up for a hearing, who gets brought up for a vote, and they took the unprecedented step of not bringing him up for a hearing or a vote. Some senators didn't even want to meet with them um, as a courtesy. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the big difference. Um, but the fact is, I mean, the Democrats did what they could under the Senate's rules as they existed up until earlier today. Um, and under those historic rules, um, they had the power to to insist on 60 votes, and there wasn't 60 votes there. Um, but now they've changed the rules so that um, that the minority party really doesn't have the power to, to block uh, any nominees, even when the Senate is closely divided. So, so Billy, we're stuck with this guy is what you're saying, huh? Well, I mean, we, we still have the vote tomorrow, but it seems like that that's going to be the case. I mean— um, the Republican senators have uh, all come out in favor of him, so they have a majority. Um, and now that we've uh, gone nuclear, that, that's all it takes. All right. So unless unless any of them reconsiders the nuclear option, Neil Gorsuch um, on his way to becoming the next Supreme Court justice. So, Sharita, I want to switch to you, and thank you so much, Reggie um, and Decatur, for your question. So. If we're stuck with this guy, and especially for us millennials, because we're going to be stuck with this guy for a lot longer than anybody else around here, sort of, what are the problems that you see in Judge Gorsuch's record that are sort of the warning flags for his tenure on the court? Right. Um, Well, we have a glimpse of his record from, um, or can kind of have some sense of how he would rule on issues that are really important to us from his record and also even though he tried to dodge every single question thrown at him in the confirmation hearing, uh, some opinions did rise to the surface. And what we're able to see is he's 
basically only good for corporations and those of us that care about, you know, um, the rights of minority groups, the rights of women, uh, the rights of workers. He's not he doesn't have a history of valuing these rights. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when you're looking at women in particular, uh, one of his best known uh, opinions on the 10th Circuit was the uh, Hobby Lobby case and Mm. he both joined the opinion and had a concurrence and his stance on religious liberty is pretty extreme honestly Um, he doesn't seem to see a lot of situations where an individual or a company's religious beliefs would be superseded by other considerations of the law. And I think just two other things you said that just the idea that a company could have a religious belief and that your boss can decide that uh, the Hobby Lobby decision remind me Shruta, that was mm-hmm. where um, your boss or your company could decide whether or not you deserved health insurance with birth control. In it. Is that right? Right. Right. Well, and um, well, I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> I was not okay with that. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, th- the decision that the Supreme Court came to was pretty horrific that um, just because you're you know, the owner of a company has a certain religious belief that the employees would have to adhere to those convictions despite federal laws that would have protected the employees' rights to access contraceptive coverage. Um, Gorsuch went even beyond that in his concurring opinion um, and he believes that a like the it wasn't just the owner of the company, but other individuals in the company could be able to make that decision. Um, and so your annoying coworker that handles the HR could say nope. You know, it's yeah, because he didn't think that anyone could be complicit in somebody else's actions that violated their religious beliefs. But it's just it, it. This just drives me so crazy because I remember when this was happening. It was, you know, it's not that they would have to be complicit in something that violates their religion. It's that they're they're foisting their religious values on you as an employee in a company that is not something. You know, that's a professional relationship. I just yeah. it is a it is a real trick of a judicial sort of jujitsu that he was able to blend those two things together and say that your boss had a say in this. Exactly. And he doesn't show much concern for the employee who's not able to get health care mm-hmm. that they need. Like that's just not present really for him. Mm-hmm. That's not something that he's weighing. And there was a similar trend in another case that he ruled on um, saying that a trans woman in jail didn't have a right to get hormone treatment, which medical experts agree is necessary for um, the health and well-being of trans people. The Department of Justice under um, Loretta Lynch and Vanita Gupta even said that it could be cruel and unusual punishment to withhold mm-hmm. this treatment from a trans person in jails. And he did not see any harm and did not see a reason why the jail should have to provide this critical treatment. Um, he also has been really it's dismissive. Just, you know, that, that I just I really don't understand that because sort of regardless of what he believes, it seems like a sort of overreach of, of of a court to be sort of in the middle of those decisions. So sort of, you know, regardless of sort of your feelings on that or your thoughts on that, why is um, sort of this judge getting getting to be that much in the middle of medical care and making those decisions? 
it's a great question and I don't yes. believe sorry it is. there's no good answer <laughs> trick question <laughs> right it's definitely it definitely should not be the role of a judge um He's been dismissive of the rights of LGBT people in other areas, too. He's um, kind of mocked the use of the courts to uh, promote and secure marriage equality for LGBT Mm. people. Uh, He has, as I said, he ruled against a trans person's access to health care. In his confirmation hearing, he was really careful not to categorize LGBT people as a class, um, Mm. which is a really significant term because that... Um, speaks to you know the rights that we have as a community uh, and the kind of increased scrutiny that any laws passed um, or existing laws that discriminate against us um, would be held to. Mm-hmm. And so we're really concerned about his view of our rights and what discrimination looks like against us. And at what point would a court with Gorsuch on it be willing to step in to help protect LGBT rights. Um, right. Based on his record, I can't really see a situation where he would be standing up for LGBT workers who are fired, like we had a case recently, or a lesbian couple who was evicted from their home, for example. Mm. Um, or, you know, the myriad of ways that LGBT people face discrimination. Um, and a lot of these cases, the court, the Supreme Court might weigh in on in coming years and yeah and i think what's really difficult about this is i think especially on this issue young people are just so much farther ahead of other generations when it comes to our views on lgbt rights and sort of what uh, the norm and what protection should be mm-hmm. and that's that's really difficult because this is a lifetime appointment and he's he's going to be there for for a long time um you know is there something that you think that young people can be doing um to start sort of building power and organizing around these issues to prepare for the threats that you're sort of talking talking about that we could see from this court um i mean definitely uh, well you know he hasn't been confirmed yet so There's, keep fighting <laughs> keep keep calling your senators um it's it's not over till it's over and also, I mean, it's there's other um, ways to kind of steer these debates outside of the court. I mean, we still have state legislatures. We still have Congress. There's a lot of other arenas um, where young people should, can and should be getting involved in the fight mm-hmm. for women's rights and LGBT rights. Um, I think as we're seeing on the federal level, these really backwards moves that go against as you mentioned millennials are pro-lgbt rights pro-women's rights really forward thinking um there's a lot that can be done at the state and local level Mm -hmm. to -hmm. win these fights at home and show that you know in your community you're not standing for these attacks absolutely and zooming out a little bit billy just you know outside of judge gorsuch's record itself on the issues that we're, we're talking about here You know, can you just talk through sort of there's a bigger question here about the nature of the judiciary and the Supreme Court and their role. You know, I, you know, growing up, I always sort of thought of them as like the traffic cop for this place. You know, they were supposed to be above politics. And just given President Trump's stated contempt for the courts, uh, you know, what are some of the dangers of, you know, the Senate going nuclear and and this really um, politicizing move that um, they're, they're trying to go through tomorrow? 
Well, I mean, I think we're going to see that play out when it comes to future judicial nominations. Um, President Trump, unfortunately, has over 100 um, seats on the federal courts that he's going to try to fill. Um, and I think we're going to need folks to speak out whenever he nominates judges that don't reflect our values, um, judges that won't protect um, the rights of LGBT people or workers or um, you know any group that um, that you know would be would be concerned about uh, the folks that he's appointing. And I think that when you look at his, um, you know, in addition to his stated contempt for the courts and judges who who rule in ways that he doesn't like. President Trump also released um, a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. So uh, he says that, you know, all of his picks are going to come from that list. But we know that a lot of the folks that he's already considering um, have uh, a record of ruling against the rights of historically marginalized groups, uh, ruling in uh, in favor of voter suppression laws, um, and all kinds of uh, disturbing uh, issues that we've seen uh, with some of these potential Supreme Court picks. And I think we're going to see a lot of those folks pop up. All right. Well, thank you so much, Billy and Sharita. So we are now um, going to go uh, get an update um, from Victoria Jones. She's a White House correspondent for Talk Media News in just a few minutes. So we'll be right back. with Generation Progress. We're going to cut over quickly to Victoria Jones. She's a White House correspondent for Talk Media News. She's going to give us some updates on what's going on today with the Senate going nuclear um, for Trump's Supreme Court nominee and also um, Rex Tillerson's comment on Syria. Victoria, are you with us? Yes, I am. Well, tell us what's going on. Well, yes, indeed. The Senate did go nuclear on Supreme Court nominees. So the Senate has changed irrevocably, uh, unless they made some extraordinary decision to change back. These things don't happen. What happened was that um, uh, Republicans failed by a 55 to 45 vote to to get to 60, a 60 supermajority, to end a Democratic filibuster on Judge Neil Gorsuch, who is up for the Supreme Court job uh, that um, President Trump nominated him for. So they failed to do that. So then uh, they uh, they went to change the rules, and by they they did so 52 to 48 along party lines and changed the long-standing rules in order to prohibit a procedural tactic. That's the filibuster. So what they've done now means that Gorsuch will be confirmed, and the majority vote will happen probably around seven o'clock tomorrow night. And uh, because Republicans control the Senate, 52 to 48, they only need 51 of them. So, uh, you know, somebody could actually go home. And, uh, in fact, Johnny Isaacson, um, the senator from Georgia, has had back surgery. So I don't know. Maybe he won't even be there, but they're probably going to make him come in, I should think. So that's what's going on. And um, it's uh, many of the Republicans did not want to do it. John McCain was, was very reluctant. And, in fact, he, uh, he uh, said that that um, anybody who wanted to do it was an idiot. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with John McCain, but also we'll remember because he's going to do it anyway, <laughs> it sounds like. 
Um, so the other um, piece that we were hoping you could update us on was uh, Secretary of State Tillerson's comments about Syria. Yes, well, it's not only him, actually. It's also President Trump now. Um, oh, what's, wow. Uh, what's going on is that senior Defense Department officials are developing options for a military strike in response to the Syrian government's chemical weapons attack that uh, killed uh, dozens of civilians on Tuesday. This is according to officials. So Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said that this uh, terrible chemical weapons attack made it clear that, quote, there was no role for Bashar Oh, wow. That's all the time we've got. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you all. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, Grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.